when I ask you to take your Bibles out and uh, turn to the book of Acts, Acts 21. I don't know what it is about that song, but that is emotionally overwhelming. A detail for you before we get into uh, Acts 21 this morning. Um, for Christmas Eve this year, if you haven't already seen it in your bulletins or maybe the, the note up on the screen, we've had to add a third service, and so that's a good thing, right? Okay, yeah, God's doing a great thing, and so we need to make more room um, for those who will be coming. So in years past, there's been two, but this year, um, 4.36 and 7.30. So if you're gonna be inviting friends, just uh, pay special attention to that, those time changes, 4.36 and 7.30, and be thinking about what works for you. I wanna pray with you before we step into the text. Would you join me in that? Let's pray together. Father, we recognize what we are about to do is holy, and we'll use the word awesome because it fits you. We're about to explore what you intend for our lives and what we can learn about you and your nature and your character and your call upon us. And I pray for each one of us that you will meet us right at the point of our need, what you've done to prepare our hearts for this moment and Many people coming in here not knowing what you're gonna say, but wanting a God encounter. Father, when you encounter each of us this morning in the midst of this teaching, I pray that these things will not quickly escape from our mind, but we will be quick to respond to the thing you're calling us to do because you're worthy of it. You're worthy, Father. You're worthy of our time being here that we set this aside to know you. We're intentional about it, God, so we ask that you would bless it. Teach us through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, we sang a song during communion. Maybe some of you sang it while you're waiting in line. and The, the lyrics to it kind of go like this. Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. You familiar with that from the Bible? It's a promise of scripture, right? Greater is he who is living in me than he who is in the world. Do you believe it, New Hope? Okay, scripture backs up that thought from Philippians in many, many places. Let me show you an anchor verse up on the screen from Philippians 2.13, and it says this. It is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. So Paul's writing that to the Philippian church to help them understand that they're not all that. I mean, there was a little bit of boastfulness going on, and Paul was reminding them, it's God who's working in you, but it's also the contrast of the promise that it's God working in you. I mean, what a cool thought. God, the creator of the universe, is at work in us, strengthening us, empowering us, there's a phrase that you might be familiar with if you've been at New Hope very long at all and you heard Rich make the statement in the midst of the, the video on missions a moment ago and the phrase goes like this, what you believe about God determines what you do next. Now you may need to chew on that phrase for a minute, if, especially if it's new to you. When, when we understand that it's God who is at work in us both to will and to do his good pleasure, his good purposes, we have to do something with this statement. What we believe about that 
What we believe about God determines what we do with that. So let me help you flesh out that thought just a little bit. The evidence of what you and I are committed to, it surfaces in the things we do, right? What we value surfaces in the midst of our week. So if I, if I really value finances, then it would stand to reason that I'm committed to making sure my financial house is in order. And if, if I'm really committed to a, a good physical body, it makes sense that I would value going to the gym and working out a lot. Or if I really value music, I've probably got a great playlist, right? Okay, so we think it through that way. It surfaces in the midst of the things we do. So my question for you this morning is, what is it that gets your time? What is it that gets your focus? What is it that gets your commitment? What are you committed to? What, what dominates your mind? What dominates your thinking? My understanding, my own personal experience is that our commitments stem from our convictions. The things that we are convicted about. I want to clarify the word convictions, especially if you're not thinking of it in terms of church world. Because very quickly when we think of convicted, we think of somebody who's like a convicted criminal, right? That's a good Webster's Dictionary definition. But in terms of biblical language, when we think of the word convicted, it's a firmly held belief. What are your convictions is what I'm really asking you. Because your strong convictions, the things that you're convicted about, those things lead to action. I can prove that. Just think of Abraham. God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I know that you're living in southern Persia. You're in the Ur of the Chaldees. But if you'll get up and if you'll leave this land, I'll take you to a new land and I will make a great and mighty nation out of you. Because Abraham was convicted that God is true to his word, that God can be trusted, Abraham picked up everything that he had, his family, and he moved to the land that we know today as Israel. And God made him into a great mighty nation, did he not? Okay, so there's a man who acted on his convictions. David, the exact same thing. David had a conviction that God would preserve his people against their enemy. So as a result of his convictions, David took an action. His action led him to walk to a stream and pick up five smooth stones and turn around and walk and face a giant we call Goliath because of his convictions. Daniel had convictions that God alone is to be worshiped. And because of that conviction, he stood against wicked kings. And against wicked kings, he was willing to say, there is only one God, the Lord God, who is to be worshiped. Convictions translate to action. So what are you convicted about? Because strong convictions, they can lead to courageous action. That's what we get to see this morning. This is important for us to understand as we go into Acts 21 because courage of that type is contagious. When you've got that kind of conviction, it causes you to have courage. It's absolutely contagious. We get to watch it on display. So let's go to Acts chapter 21 and verse 1. Paul is resuming his voyage. He's taking the money that he's gathered from the churches and he's going to carry it all the way to Jerusalem. He's helping to relieve the people who are starving. This is what verse 1 says. When we had parted from them and had set sail, we ran a straight course to Kos, the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. 
And having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we came in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we kept sailing to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And there's huge trauma in the midst of the parting when they're leaving the dock. We looked at this last week. When the team is getting to the end of the dock, everybody surrounding them are weeping to the degree that they're trying to hold Paul back. The NIV actually has even a better translation of it. You'll see it on the screen. Acts 21.1, it says, after we had torn ourselves away from them. It's even a better translation because it's playing off in this word, apaspao, this Greek word that's in your notes, the only Greek word that's in there this morning. You see it on the screen as well. And it's literally a military term. It's talking about a soldier drawing his sword out of his sheath meaning the metal being separated from the leather. Paul literally had to tear himself away from these individuals. Why? Because the love is so great, they can't stand to part with him, and it's leaving them emotionally raw. And here's my first point for you this morning. Conviction of the kind of conviction we're talking about has purpose. Because Paul has purpose, because he understands what he's supposed to do, even though the love is for so great for him, he has such purpose, it moves him to act because his convictions are so strong. So Paul acts. He's acting in the purposes of God, even though it's incredibly hard, even though he doesn't want to leave his friends, he has to rip himself away. Conviction has purpose. And he can do this because of the promise that we see in Philippians chapter two. It is God who works in you, both to will and to do, because that kind of stuff we can't necessarily do of our own human strength. It has to be God working through us. So it's God who works through you, both to will and to act according to his good purpose. Now we see in verse one that they sail to Rhodes according to what Luke mentioned here. Matter of fact, he's listed all those cities along the way. But one kind of cool thing about Rhodes is if you learned in high school history class uh, about Rhodes, it's the area where one of the ancient seven wonders of the world was at. Matter of fact, the image that you see on the screen is of the thing that's most associated with Rhodes. Sailors going in and out of the port literally sailed their ships underneath the legs of this great statue statue that was there. So this is what's associated with Rhodes, but Paul is sailing in such a hurry, he wants to get to Jerusalem. They're jumping from port to port, and they've been hugging the coast, moving from island to island, but he's determined he wants to get there before Pentecost, and so he decides to leave one ship and get onto an ocean-going vessel, which holds about 250 people. And we see Luke say they're crossing over in verse 2, having found a ship crossing over. That means a big passenger ship, something capable of going four to 500 miles without stopping. So he says, we saw Cyprus, but we left it on the left. We kept on going. We saw the islands, and we end up eventually in the port of Tyre which is a major port city. So we come to verse four and we get this description of what happens next. After looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days and they kept telling Paul through the spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. Now immediately you've gotta ask yourself the question, how can that be? How can they be telling Paul through the spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem? Is the Spirit of God telling them Paul should not go, yet the same Spirit is telling Paul to go? Is this a case of, hey, uh, Paul, God told me to tell you. Have you ever had somebody do that? I've had that. Hey, uh, God told me to tell you the following. Well, it'd be great if God would tell me directly because I have a relationship with him. So we've got Paul being told by some individuals that the Spirit's telling them 
that he should not go. But Paul is absolutely convinced God's leading him. But on the other hand, you've got believers who are dialed into God also. So why does Luke include this? Well, see, they're aware that some bad things are about to happen. Some stuff is going to go down. And they know that Paul's going to be exposed to it. So they're trying to convince him, God may not be in this, Paul. Now, if you're not familiar with this story at all, or maybe you haven't been here in the last couple of weeks, I don't want you to feel like you've just walked into the middle of a movie. Here's the deal with Paul. He does not have a hero complex. He's not suffering from a martyr syndrome. He's, he's not constantly looking for ways in which he can suffer. But suffering is just part of who he is because of the things that he's been called to do. So here's a logical question for us. Does Paul have a clear understanding or do the people who are believers in Jesus have a clear understanding? Who's wrong here? One of the things we know is that the Bible is very, very clear about exposing the flaws of its heroes, right? And it's one of the great things about the Bible. It, It doesn't hesitate to show us the failures of Abraham and David and Daniel and Isaiah and John and Peter, but it also shows us their victories. So it's not a case of the Bible trying to hide whether or not Paul's doing something wrong here. What we understand, and this is the second part, is if conviction has a purpose, conviction is not diverted. So we need to understand what's going on in verse 4 when it says they're speaking through the Spirit. Here's the way I understand it. Some individuals have the gift of discernment that are in that group. And the the Spirit has revealed to them, Paul is about to go through some really hard things. It's about to get rough. And because of their great love for him, their friend and their mentor, they're seeing this as an issue, an opportunity to warn him to stay away. However, Paul has always lived a life sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. We've seen times when he wanted to go into certain regions and God said, Paul, you can't go there and Paul has obeyed. So he has this really long history of living life in obedience to God's direction. And he's intimately aware of the things that wait for him in Jerusalem. But you got these believers in Tyre who are seeing the suffering that he's going to endure. So it's natural when your friends are gonna go into hard situations that you're gonna try and dissuade them away. You're going to try and convince them that they're stepping into territory they should not step into. Here's what I understand is going on. They're more concerned for Paul's safety than they are for the mission. You catch that? Ask yourself if you've done that. Ask yourself if someone's trying to do that to you now. They're more concerned for the safety of their friend than they are for the mission that God has called him to do. What you are witnessing here is a contrast in maturity levels. Believers who are less mature than Paul, who are hearing things from the Holy Spirit and they're reacting in natural human tendency, which is don't go there, Paul. But Paul understands exactly what God has called him to do. So the Spirit's message here is a forewarning. It's not a prohibition. And neither the persecution that's waiting for him or the warnings of his very well-intending friends are going to divert him away because conviction is not diverted. Let's move on to the next verse, verse 5, part A. I just want to do part of it here. It says, when our days there were ended, we left and started on our journey, while they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city. So stop right there for just a second without finishing the verse. A very cool mental image. 
So after a week has gone by, it's time to leave. The cargo ship is unloaded and it's taken new cargo on. They're ready to set sail. And we get this cool picture coming up of some people going to the beach. And they're at the side of the ocean and they're about to kneel in some very soft sand. Go with me to the remainder of it, part B. And it says in part B, after kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. See, everyone is fully aware of what's going on. They all know what's waiting for Paul, and they don't want to lose him. So the best thing those believers can do is kneel down and put prayer protection over him. It's a cool image, isn't it? It's like a church sending a missionary out, praying around them for God's protection and God's provision. Verse 6 says this, then we went on board the ship, and they returned home again. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, And after greeting the brethren, we stayed with them for a day. Verse 8. On the next day, we left and came to Caesarea and entering the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Now, this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. So the next day, literally, they go on a 40-mile journey, which is not that long in the ship. They, They make the port of Caesarea. I understand port cities. I grew up in Whitehall, Michigan, just north of Muskegon, Michigan. Muskegon is considered a port city for Lake Michigan. We saw freighters coming in and out all the time. So they're coming into a port city, and Caesarea is unique because it's the official residence of the rulers of Rome who have been stationed in Israel. The Jews hated Caesarea so much for that very reason that they considered Caesarea a foreign city even though it was located within their borders because the Gentiles all hung out there. But we find out not only the Gentiles but Philip, one of the seven according to Scripture. This individual was mentioned to us all the way back in Acts chapter 6. Why is he called one of the seven? Well, because that's the time when the church was beginning just had been birthed and it needed to distribute food out to the widows who were very, very hungry. And Philip was chosen as one of the seven to oversee the distribution of food. This is the same Philip who carried the gospel into Samaria. This is the same Philip who carried the gospel into North Africa and met with the Ethiopian eunuch. That's that same Philip here. Do you see the irony in this situation? Before Paul was following Jesus, he was persecuting the church and consenting to the death of the leaders of the church. So Philip was Paul's enemy. And now you find him after Jesus, they're hanging out in the house together and breaking bed together. How cool is that, that God brings these guys together? Paul and Philip under the same roof, and we find out that Philip has these four daughters. And we don't get any real details about it. A few things that we know, his four daughters have this gift of prophecy, which is matching what Peter said in the sermon at Pentecost back in Acts chapter 2, that in the last days, God would pour out his spirit and young women would prophesy. Well, we see that here. Tradition places these four young women eventually living in Turkey, and they became individuals who passed on the traditions of the church orally. Things that the apostles did during the apostolic age, they passed on to future generations of the church, and that's all we know about them. But the story picks up again in verse 10. As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. 
Now, we learned about Agabus in Acts chapter 11. He's the guy who showed up and began to warn that there would be a huge famine that would come over all the known earth. So people began putting away food and putting away money and resources. That's the same Agabus who has shown up here, and he is a powerful prophet. And he's doing something like an Old Testament type prophet. He's bringing in a visual image. So he goes up to Paul and Paul's wearing this girdle. A girdle meaning a very long linen robe wrapped around his waist. Almost like a a linen towel, but it's much, much longer than that. He unwinds it from Paul, peels it off, and begins wrapping his own ankles up, wrapping his own feet and hands up, And then with Old Testament type prophecy begins giving this imagery of thus saith the Lord, except he's speaking through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he says, the Holy Spirit says, the guy who owns this, he's in for some hard times. Now understand, Agabus is not trying to warn Paul away. He's not like the immature believers whom Paul has left behind on the dock. He's not urging Paul to avoid Jerusalem. He's just saying, here's the reality, Paul. You're all in, and this is what's going to happen to you. There's certainty in what's going to occur. So when Paul's friends hear this, they jump to an immediate conclusion. Go with me to the next verse. Their conclusion is this, verse 12. When we heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. Do you notice that Luke includes himself in that? See, Luke's writing this. So think about who we learned about last week, if you were here, who were in this group. When he says we, Luke, Titus, Timothy, Tychicus, individuals whose names are littered throughout the New Testament, some who are authors of Scripture, who are saying, Paul, you can't possibly expose yourself to that. Who's right there? Who's doing the right thing? They're literally begging him, Paul, don't go. The capture is inevitable. And here's what it sounds like when well-meaning friends try and divert you from God's plan. Paul, certainly there's got to be somebody else that can take the money up there. We'll go. Can't we go on your behalf? Why does it have to be you? You're going to be captured. It sounds reasonable, right? Doesn't that sound like something we would say if we're trying to warn a friend away, especially if we're reacting to things that we know are true? So we've got to search our own hearts in this. We have to be very, very careful to understand, have I said things like that to people? Am I guilty of saying things like that right now? Am I trying to stop the work of God that's going on in someone's life? And and conversely, you must expect that someone will attempt to dissuade you especially when it comes into times where you're exposing yourself to hostility and you're exposing yourself to danger. And if the danger is great enough, if the risk is high enough, some family members, some friends will even attempt to dissuade you with tears and with pleadings. Don't go. This can't be God's will. Many times that's exactly what it sounds like. Here's my observation after having walked with Christ since the age of 14. And I've had to learn this the hard way. Many people have a genuine desire to go after Jesus. Many people have a genuine desire to follow him. But fear the cost of picking up the cross and following him. 
Jesus says once we put our hand to the plow, we cannot look back to the old life. He says anybody that looks back, meaning they want to go back, they're not fit for the kingdom. So putting your hand to the plow means I'm staying straight on course what he's called me to do. Many fear that because the risk and the responsibility that comes along with it. You personally today in this auditorium, I I said this to the nine o'clock service and the Saturday night service, you personally today may not be required to suffer prison time for the name of Jesus, but you might. You may not personally be required to sacrifice your reputation, but you might. Ridicule of the name of Jesus and those who belong to him is on the increase in our country, is it not? We feel it. We sense it. What are my convictions about who Jesus is? You and I have to be prepared to see times like this for the sake of the name that is above every name. His name is above every name, right, church? Okay. We celebrate it through communion. We sing about it loudly. We must be prepared for the name that is above every name because I'll lean back into the first conviction. Conviction has purpose. We don't have conviction for the sake of conviction. We have conviction for a sake of purpose, and Paul understands his purpose. So let's go to verse 13 and finish out the story. Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. I anticipate having not been there, but this is what I'm imagining. I believe silence completely fell across the room in that moment. As Paul's played the ultimate trump card, It's for Jesus. How can you try and do this and talk me out of this when it's for the king? And here's how I understand silence across the room. Not just because Luke writes about it in the next verse when he says we all fell silent, but also for this reason. When Paul uses the word breaking, he's using an incredibly strong Greek word. When women went to streams or went to large basins of water with their family's laundry for the week, they would carry with them laundry stones. And the laundry stones, the rocks, were intended to use to beat the dirt out of the fabric. And so they would begin pounding upon the fabric, trying to loosen the soil that had made its way into the fibers of the linen. This is the exact same word that Paul is using here. What are you doing pounding on my heart. Why are you trying to break me this way? Why are you speaking into me this way? You're crushing me here. See, in this moment, if Paul has any conflict whatsoever, it's not over whether or not to go. It's in the separation from his friends and what it's going to cost. Think in terms of what Jesus encountered as he's on his way to be arrested. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in that moment, he thinks back to the time when Peter tried to tempt him away from his responsibility. Remember this, when Jesus was talking to the the group of the followers? 
And we find Peter hearing what Jesus has described. I'm going to be handed over to the Jews and the Jews are gonna hand me over to the Gentiles and the Gentiles are going to murder me. And Peter's first response is, no, Lord Jesus, no, let it not be. And Jesus' immediate response is, get behind me, Satan. Because his friend tried to divert him away from what God had made very clear was his responsibility to do. Paul's gotta be feeling that tension in that moment. And so he centered us when he says in verse 13, I'm doing this for the name of the Lord Jesus. My understanding, nominal Christians, those who are content to call themselves Christians, are very content to call Jesus Savior. And so they should, because he is Savior. But it it takes a true Christ follower, a true believer, to understand his excellency, that the name of Jesus is above every name, and so therefore, he's worthy not only to be called Jesus, but to be called Lord Jesus. His blood paid the price to remove my sin. His blood is our hope to restore us to right relationship with God. So therefore, he is the name that is above every name. He is worthy of the title Lord. So Paul uses that. I'm doing this for the name of the Lord Jesus. From that type of unshakable conviction comes absolute resolute courage. You will not change a person like that. Even though their counsel is well meant, it's springing out of immaturity. You might think I'm being disrespectful to Luke, to Timothy, to Titus, but they're not seeing this clearly. They're not seeing what God has called Paul to do, or they wouldn't be begging him in this moment. So here's what I understand about maturity. Maturity surrenders to God no matter what. Immaturity wants its own way every single time. It's just the way immaturity acts. So Paul understands the next conviction, and the next conviction is this. Conviction pays any price, any price whatsoever. Paul is essentially saying, I'm not Christian by preference. I am Christian by conviction. I'm ready to die for Jesus. So we have to ask ourselves that same question this morning. Am I Christian by preference, or am I Christian by conviction? My own understanding is many Americans are Christian by preference. I I prefer to be Christian as opposed to being Buddhist. I prefer Christianity over Islam. I I prefer Christianity over atheism. Well, well, gag me, Jesus is not a cup of coffee, right? Okay, I, I prefer Jesus over We are Christian by conviction, by firmly held belief. The understanding that he is king of kings and lord of lords. Why do I say that? Because people don't die for preferences. People die for their convictions. Paul is saying it right here. I am Christian by conviction. So I'm here to ask you this morning, what are your convictions about Jesus? Where do you stand on the issue? Because when all else fails, you're left with only your convictions. That's how Jesus measures the heart. 
Are you for me or are you against me? A house divided against itself cannot stand. Paul, Paul's willing to pay any price. So conviction pays any price. He's willing to pay any price to complete what Jesus has called him to do. Many theologians refer to this as Paul's Gethsemane. You know what I mean by that? Think about Jesus in the garden again. He's in the garden. He's going to be arrested. His prayer, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Paul's facing the exact same thing here because of the pleadings of his friends who are begging him not to go. So watch verse 14. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, the will of the Lord be done. This is very similar to Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. Paul doesn't want to face the agony, but he's so committed to God's purposes, the believers have to fall completely silent. God's will be done. So this brings us to our last conviction because we just finished the last verse. Conviction inspires because of its commitment. Conviction inspires because of our conviction. Other individuals who would back away find their courage increasing. How do I know that? Verse 15, 16, and 17, you can read it later today, but what you find is these same individuals who are afraid for Paul's life, find themselves following Paul right into Jerusalem, walking right with him. Why is that significant? Because Paul is a marked man, and they know it. And if he's about to be arrested, put on trial, probably facing death, but ultimately he will, he'll be beheaded by Rome, they know that that identifies them with him. Their courage is increasing because conviction inspires So they're willing to put themselves out there because courage like that is contagious. So Paul is no longer going to be able to speak freely. We know this because of the rest of the book of Acts. Soon he's going to be in chains. He's going to find himself in prison. But do those chains keep him from talking about Jesus? Absolutely not. You can't shut the guy up. That kind of courage can't be stopped. So we end the story right there, and I want to ask you this question in closing, which is going to build into two more questions. What are your convictions? And let's start with the most basic one. What are your convictions about Jesus? And if you've never dealt with that issue in your life about who Jesus is, is he king? Is he Lord? Is he Savior? Deal with that issue first if you never have. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. If you feel like you're the only one in the room, you're not unique. Everyone needs the forgiveness of the King. Deal with that issue first. What are your convictions about who Jesus is? If you're a believer this morning, though, if you held up the cup and you held up the bread, I'm going to ask you the next question that's really hard. What are your convictions about the mission? What are your convictions about what he's called you to do? And I'll ask it this way. Do you care enough about the mission to invest in it? And I don't mean money. Money is the least of it. I'm talking about your life. It means your reputation. It means the kind of conversations that you have. That takes us to the last question. Do you care enough, do you have enough conviction to risk the relationships? That can be really hard takes a lot of courage, doesn't it? 
takes a lot of courage to do what Paul did when friends are pleading and begging, Paul, don't go. And yet you know that you know that you know that God has called you to that responsibility. It takes enormous courage in moments like that. It may require all the courage you can muster this week and all the conviction you have within you to confront a friend, a family member, maybe even a coworker who you identify as wandering away, maybe living egregiously against God, and you've got to speak into that. It may require everything that's within you to speak into that. But here's the great thing, church. It's not totally dependent upon you. It is God who works within you to will and to do according to his good purpose. That's the promise of Scripture. And God doesn't lie, does he? See, what you believe about God really determines what you do next. How do you respond to that? That's how I'm going to pray for us this morning. I'm going to pray for us as a body of believers that we will have the conviction to respond when God brings opportunities our way. Let's pray that way. Father, we bow our head before you, and we're doing it symbolically just as a recognition that we are totally obedient and in submission to you. We bow our head because you're worthy and you're the king. You're the master and we're the servant. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters who name the name of Jesus that in these moments, what we feel, what we sense, what we believe, we understand strongly from what you have spoken to us through the power of the Holy Spirit, that that will carry with us tomorrow into the office setting, into the workplace, into the study hall, Father, into our neighborhood. God, wherever we go, that we will remember that we are called by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And it's you who is at work within us. So remind us, Father, when we feel weak, when we feel feeble and like we're going to fail and and maybe we will, God, remind us it's you who's working within us. Let us lean into your strength in all our ways to acknowledge you. Thank you, Father, for what your spirit has done in this auditorium in this last hour. We praise you in the name of the one whose name is above every name, our King Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.